Hey, and welcome to the Thoughtcast. I'm Philip Elke, your host, and I'm joined by my brother, Dawson. Hey, good to see you. Good to be here in Hollywood, California. Oh my gosh, Dawson, you're here in Hollywood? Are you sure? Am I imagining things? Well, it, uh, you can't you can't see me. I can't see you either, but that's crazy because I'm here in Hollywood. So <laughs> I don't know. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, we're kind of recording right next to each other, but um, we're, we're still doing the same kind of video conferencing method as before. So once we get a new setup going, we can maybe be doing this face to face. Yeah, I don't know how to I don't know how to make it. How, how do we sit in the same room and record a podcast together? <laughs> Science. Well, we can't. Yeah, we can't have the delay of USB connection kind of getting in the way. So, yeah, once I get a mixer and some other you know, magical, uh, once we go pro. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the Thoughtcast conversations about animation, where we'll be talking about an animated film today, a very special animated film from 2010 from DreamWorks animation, our first discussion of a DreamWorks animated film. What is the movie we're talking about today? Dawson dragon age origins. Just was that kidding. From 2010? Uh, I think it probably was. That's the 2010 uh, animated uh, feature film about dragons. Uh, but we're talking about a different animated feature film about dragons from the year 2010. Uh, How to Train Your Dragon. Yes, How to Train Your Dragon from DreamWorks Animation. Arguably the best DreamWorks animated film. It, it is hard to say because, yeah, DreamWorks, they're, they're a little more diverse. They're not as, like, within their own... Um, brand as as like Disney or Pixar and I I don't like celebrate them as this hallowed bastion of American culture as much as as I do Dis, you know Disney and Pixar but, right um, but it came from Disney like it is an offshoot fair to say um yeah pretty much this uh Jeffrey Katzenberg helped to found Dreamworks um after he left Disney and and of course the animated in- animation industry often features a lot of the same talent working across multiple studios yeah Dreamworks animation is just kind of one of the key players and and they tend to uh put out um quite a few films per year um they they do 2 to 3 per year typically um, yeah yeah um <laughs> that's just the thing like they've done the you know that trolls movie that um i've never seen called? that and totally forgot it existed yeah like home home was that the one with the alien and rihanna that came out i thought that must have like got canceled i saw I never that saw I, I saw that yeah did. Um, it wasn't it was kind of forgettable um the crudes um oh yeah madagascar i've literally forgotten about all of these dare we i mean can you call them franchises they've got they've got shrek the franchise then they've got madagascar and then how to train your dragon those are like the only three series kung fu panda i absolutely love kung fu Mm. Ah, man yeah and that one of course uh i've only seen the first two though are there four now there's three okay yeah, I haven't seen the, I haven't seen the third. And they did Over the Hedge. Oh, good. classic! Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, I. So as far as like standalone movies from them that I enjoy, because I I like Shrek well enough. The third one's kind of iffy, but you know, the fourth one was also a little 
less impactful, but but it was. Fun. I think every uh, most people would say that the third and fourth are just trash and that they get worse and worse. <laughs> but I mean, honestly, like I I enjoy they, they have their merits. Like they have right. Uh, they're not you know amazing, and I think it's I mean fair. Shrek is probably DreamWorks best film but i enjoy how to train your dragon more thematically narratively all yeah. all of the above um mm, Shrek's yeah. such a such its own thing i mean shrek is love shrek is life but uh i've you know got mm -hmm. my own how to train your dragon was such a like i was just so glad someone finally made an animated movie like it when when it came out mm -hmm. um, not enough it, death and sword fighting but it had dragons and swords and that was that was um, an improvement. It's an incredibly heartfelt film, and it um, does does come from some of the talent that originated at Disney Animation. Um, the directors are Dean DeBlois and Chris Sanders, who co-directed Lilo and Stitch in 2002. Um, and, and you can see a little bit of influence from that film on, on this one. Um, you know, maybe with some of the designs, we'll get into that as well. Um, this movie was uh, greenlit, I think, shortly after the book came out. It's, it is based on a children's novel or a children's novel series by Presida Cowell. Um, How to Train Your Dragon was published in 2004. Um, so it, it really was an attempt um, to take on kind of a, a fantasy type scenario um, that is, is kind of along the lines. It's definitely a, a major departure from Shrek um, in that it is a, like a very sincere telling of, of, a, of a fairy tale, essentially. The source material, I don't know when the books were written. I know I picked uh, it up. Um, I was either in like late elementary school or, or middle school. I, I really had a, person, a pirate phase for years and years. Pirates were like my favorite thing. Um, then I saw this fun looking book with the cute little drawings on the cover that said how to be a pirate. And, um, and I actually, I took the title very literally. I thought it was going to be like kind of a, uh, an actual step-by-step -step walkthrough because I wanted to know what it would take, uh, to be a pirate and it ended up being this story about uh, a little boy discovering a dragon, um, uh, who was in fact a Viking. So I felt misled there. It was like how to be a pirate. And then it was all about Vikings. And, you know, I, I I was looking for, you know, Spanish galleons and sloops and Blackbeard and cutlasses. I wasn't really looking for horned helmeted Scandinavians, but that's what I got. And then I really fell in love with the story. It was, um, I don't remember very well. And I didn't read all of the books in the series. And maybe there's like eight or 10 by now or five. I don't even know. Um, but yeah, How to Be a Pirate. And then its sequel was How to Train Your Dragon if I'm not mistaken. I haven't researched this uh, specifically, <laughs> but um, How to Be a Pirate was really good. It was hilarious. It was really funny. It's like a really, kind of had like sort of that, uh, who was the author of the like Wayside School and Holes and Lu Louis, Louis Pasteur? No, that's the guy who invented uh, penicillin. Oh, uh, Louis, Louis Sacker. Louis Sacker. Saccharin, yeah. Uh, just kind of uh, really witty and, and, and funny, uh, but also, um, you know, adventurous. Uh, so yeah, um, that, they, were, they were little novels. Uh, not at all like the movie, but ah, here we have a, a wonderful case of an adaptation 
barely being faithful at all to the source material, except in the names of the characters and some locations. Uh, yeah, completely different story, uh, but both excellent. Um, the, I, the first one would have been difficult to do a straight adaptation to because it was, it was very tongue in cheek, very self-referential, you know, very kind of modern. It was like a sort of a, a princess bride type book where it kept, you know, it was, it wasn't like a straightforward narrative. It was a straightforward narrative, but very, oh, I, I don't know how to say it. But, uh, um, and then the How to Train Your Dragon, the film takes itself very seriously uh, and tells a, a completely different story than the one in the book. It was in development before the directors came on. Um, they discussed this a little bit in the uh, filmmaker's commentary with the co-directors as well as producer Bonnie Arnold who kind of alluded to Dean DeBlois and um, Chris Sanders coming in and sort of fixing. She actually corrects herself early on in the commentary uh, when she's describing the main character's um, introduction and how, you know, they're having difficulty with that. And then, you know, the, the two directors came in and they kind of, uh, you know, they really fixed... Uh, adjusted this character's introduction and of course uh, the film centers around this main character he's a viking child he's uh, a young teenager um by the name of hiccup so Wait, what was the issue with the introduction of the character that they were it wasn't working uh as well as they wanted and it, it is it like the opening of the film is very meticulously crafted because Oh yeah, it's, it, yeah. It's an uh, action set piece um, underneath uh, narration from Jay Barrichell, who plays the the role of Hiccup, um, and and then yeah. So you have to get out a lot of exposition in the short amount of time and community. And they do it brilliantly. Did yeah. they probably didn't want to use narration at first because nobody does, but then mm -hmm. just resorted to it because they had to, and that's not always a bad thing. It. Like in this case, it really worked really well. The whole intro is like kind of a, a Rube Goldberg machine, it feels like when you're watching it, mm -hmm. um, where what he's describing and what you see uh, is kind of like is watching a joke play out. Like he says something, you see something, and it relates, and it's funny, or it contrasts, and the juxtaposition, it's uh, um, it's really, really, really lovely, really fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very artfully done. It does, I think, borrow directly from the novel, um, one of the quotes is um, Hiccup describing the village of Burke, uh, mm -hmm. this sort of nondescript Scandinavian Viking village um, on, that's on the sea. And um, it's apparently located 12 days north of Hopeless, a few degrees south of freezing to death, and uh, situated squarely on the meridian of misery. Love it. That sounds straight from Cressida Cowell. I, one, of, my, one of my bigger disappointments with the film is that they never say Hiccup's full name from the novel, which is Hiccup Horrendous Haddock III. Um, huh. And Stoic the Vast is the name of his father, but presumably Stoic the Vast is Stoic. Stoic. Is Stoic. Stoic. Not Stoic. That's hilarious. Stoic. I think, okay, when I read the book, I called him Stoic, but like, Oh my gosh. Like my brain subconsciously remembered that as a seventh grader, I read the word stoic 
even though I know full well it's stoic and would normally call him that in the context of the film. Wow, weird. Uh, yeah, stoic, horrendous haddock, the third. Yeah, it's spelled differently from the word stoic. Uh, they add a K There's at the end for some reason. Which is probably why I called him stoic in the book. <laughs> or you were just a dumb kid. No, I'm just kidding. Well, I was, uh, but I also, I mean, it, it lends itself. Yeah. Well, okay. So this film, I mean, DreamWorks, some of their movies are known for being a little bit more uh, mature in, in their content. Um, but, like use of the D word. <laughs> well, yeah. Mild, mild curses. Um, sex jokes. <laughs> well, and some of their 2D films definitely were maybe a, even a bit more um, extreme in, in their willingness to go places. Um, what they did... Uh, Prince of Egypt, about. yeah, Prince um, of Egypt, and Road to El Dorado. There you go, that's and Sinbad. Sinbad, yeah. I tried watching that a couple years ago because I loved it when I was little, and then I couldn't. We couldn't keep going. Like I don't know what happened, but like the my second viewing in college, I was like, none of this makes any sense. This is the least compelling thing I've ever seen we shut it off anyway yeah i mean this is quite a bit different from some of their previous films that do center around adult protagonists uh whereas here it's it's mainly hiccup and and some of his friends who are also you know the same age so yeah it's it's targeted towards a younger demographic but um definitely done so in a way that it's um it's just very rich thematically and, and dramatic in its conveyance of of all the action and um, intention um, that that is meant to um, convey the this relationship that Hiccup has with his uh, with his father and also with the uh, the dragon character that comes into play uh, fairly early on in the film because um, yeah this opening set piece that begins with the narration and springs right into this dragon attack on Burke. Um, apparently, they experience the most, uh, well, and, and this is a, um, a moment that gets mirrored at the end of the film, but at the start, the phrase is, you know, they, they suffer from the worst pests, mm -hmm. which are the dragons who, would, who come and abduct their livestock, their sheep, um, and burn their village. <laughs> Dragon raids are a frequent threat in Burke. Yeah. Who knows how, how frequently it is? You, you'd think, because these dragons, they do breathe fire like... There's literally thousands of these dragons. They all breathe fire. The, pretty much every species breathes, breathes fire, or worse. Um, and Burke is this tiny town. And if they wanted to, they could annihilate in nuclear holocaust fashion the tiny pitiful town of Burke. Um, I mean, one dragon raid could wipe out the entire sheep uh, populace of Burke, which is their primary uh, uh, economic source. It, none of it makes any sense, but it's wonderful. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it can make sense in that these dragons, dragons are often depicted as, as basically their own intelligent race in, in most fantasy. Right. Usually there's there's not that many of them though. Usually like uh, usually there's maybe like one or or two or three maybe. And like 
you get one dragon attack every few months and then they try to fight it and it leaves the village in ruins and then another comes and they're like how many dragons are there like and then this you know we need to send a dragon hunter out after to like discover how many dragons there are and if there's anything we can do to placate or defeat them i mean there there's literally i mean some of these dragons are are far worse than alduin the world eater from the elder scrolls 5 skyrim i mean there's like hundreds of alduins imagine um <laughs> well I, these these dragons uh, are dumb but they they aren't like reptile level inexpressive they they do have expression they're they're kind of like mammals um in that way that's true they're, they're maybe a bit like you know the asian interpretation of dragons that often have fur like these don't have fur they're like fully reptilian but the the way their mannerisms are are very they're freakish and bizarre and absurd well they, the designs their, their yeah design. we can talk about <laughs> the designs which are are not the most conventional for dragons. one thing about the threat level of the dragons i guess it maybe is important to point out that while they have the ability to be extremely dangerous and violent they're they're like animals you know like wolves and bears and stuff even though they're incredibly powerful mm -hmm. it's not their instinct to be aggressive they just uh like they wouldn't normally go out looking to attack you um they go to burke for the food and maybe they're interested in going in and getting in and out you know without causing any like maybe they don't they don't want to harm and i think that's that is one of the points of the film is that they're an intelligent well they're dumb but they're, at the they're same animals. time an intelligent race that's they're animals yeah they're looking out for themselves but they, they're not wanting to hurt anybody mm -hmm. and uh but that's yeah they're they've been vilified as vicious mm -hmm. violent aggressive creatures anyway yeah the designs um unconventional good good way of putting it there's several or quite a few actually dragon types that are mentioned in the film but really only a handful are seen and and they're just replicated across lazy yeah um these these massive crowd <laughs> sequences of of dragons yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it maybe had to come down to time. Um, time is the ultimate enemy in animation, as they'll attest on the commentary, uh, both getting things uh, in under the deadline and paring things down to, you know, fit within a reasonable runtime. Um, I'm curious to hear from the commentary what, if they mentioned specifically, they had to cut down, like what, what were some of the babies they killed? Yeah, that is a good question. You don't have to get into that now if you want to well, keep going. No, on lines, um, but... I, I can think of at least one, which is, I, I think, the uh, the dragons. Like, they, they probably wish they could have come up with a few more rigs for the dragons. But the movie is so complex. Like, they're, it is a very majestic-looking film visually. And they did bring in Roger Deakins, um, the, the famed uh, cinematographer, to handle a lot of the cinematography effects for the film. He, he stayed on through the entire project. This is one of his, like, many magnum opuses <laughs> as a filmmaker. Because he's, he, what, he, I guess he only recently won his first Oscar, right, Roger Deakins? Um, what, who, what has he done? Um, he did... So the first thing that can't comes up on IMDb is Skyfall, uh, but Blade Runner twenty forty nine, for which he oh, wow. won an Oscar. Um, no Country for Old Men. Um, 
Oh my gosh, so, what? Really? Nominated for Sicario, for Unbroken, Prisoners, True Grit, the reader. Yeah. As a cinematographer, does that mean he was DP, director of photography? Yes. Or okay. Uh, well, the credit on How to Train Your Dragon. Because he's obviously can't sit there and hold the camera. But I mean, yeah, does that mean he. It's visual consultant. So. Okay. Yeah. And then he, he was also consultant on Wally, Rango, Puss and Boots, uh, Rise of the Guardians. Oh, that was an, another standalone DreamWorks film that, because, um, because, yeah, like DreamWorks, a, a lot of their, a lot of my favorite movies from them are all part of a larger franchise, which isn't necessarily the case with like the Disney and Pixar films and, or Miyazaki, like it's a lot of standalone, but with DreamWorks, it is, they're, they're a bit more, shall we say, uh, corporate, <laughs> but uh, yeah, Rise of the Guardians, had that done better, I'm sure it probably would have spawned sequels, uh, an enjoyable enough film, um, but yeah, then Deacons also went on to uh, How to Train Your Dragon 2, and uh, now he's, he's acting as consultant on, on the third one, which um, they've, they've dropped the numeric designation in favor of subtitle uh, the hidden world which comes out in february uh, february 22nd 2019 mark your calendars for how to train your dragon the hidden world they're not a three is officially not in the title no nope, it's not <laughs> i guess how to train your dragon how to train your dragon two how to train your dragon the hidden yeah, world they dropped that pretty quick um, but anyways, um, yeah, so it's a very technically innovative film for DreamWorks. Um, and and uh, another thing that they, a, a baby they had to kill, so to speak, um, just the youth of the, the village. They really had to, um, had a crunch in order to get the supporting cast of, um, well, there, there really is only four uh, other kids besides Hiccup and his love interest. Um, the love interest played by America Ferreira named Astrid. Um, and then really only four other kids, Snot Lout played by Jonah Hill, Fish Legs by, played by Christopher Mintz Plus, Tough Nut played by TJ Miller, and Rough Nut played by Kristen Wiig. Um, so it's like, how do these... Uh, villagers repopulate themselves having to face off against all these dragons as well as <laughs> I, you know i kind of just always assumed that the group of kids you see in the film is is a group of kids that happens to be going through this dragon training at that particular time and that there are other kids that just aren't at you know it's it's a it's not a good explanation because i mean there are you know you know, shots that show many, many citizens of this of the city, and you just never see children scattered among them. But you know, Elder Scrolls has the same problem. They don't. The mortality rate is pretty <laughs> steep. They don't survive the the twelve the the eight degrees. Below I'm sure the, the harsh climate for the babies of the village. It is it's right at freezing to death. Presumably, they're able to escape some of the more treacherous. Um, hazards by retreating into the mountain. You do see that they do have like a main keep that's built into the rocks of the mountains around Berg. Do they? 
Yeah, wow. yeah. There's a big like meat hall scene, like when they're the kids are meeting together. Oh, having... that's in the rock. That's right. Mm-hmm. It is. Yep. The big, yeah. big old I, a set. Let, that's probably my favorite set in the film. This this big meat hall. Yeah. Like throne room, kind of right. like you know Beowulf with the what do they call that? Rothgar. You know what it reminds me of though. Is that the king or is that the hall? I can't. I get uh, Rothgar is is the name of a of a king um, in Aragon, uh, and it's the name of the name of a place. Yeah, High Rothgar, and the again Elder Scrolls uses that for their place. That location reminds me of the Grinch's cave uh, and the banquet that he holds at the end of the film, where there's a big panning shot of you know his cave is so vast and endless and whole and is large enough to hold this long table for a feast, a subterranean, a subterranean meat hall. Um, Hrothgar was the Danish King that Beowulf fights for. Um, his, his, um, mead hall was called Heorot, H E O Heorot for yeah. it smelled of rotting hay. <laughs> yeah. Well, they scattered the medieval, uh, castles. They did this. They, and people don't know exactly what it looks like, but they scattered hay upon the floor or in straw, like before guests came and, or it, I, no one knows why or what exactly that looked like, but, um, yeah, they would throw Strong yeah. Anyway. Well, my fantasy is that they have a Hierat type mead hall structure, um, like underneath the castle in in Frozen, that can provide a an interesting set piece for future films. Who knew we had a big ass mead hall? <laughs> yeah, Kristoff, uh, <laughs> you know, sits down in there and sulks when uh, Anna and Elsa supposedly are going off on their adventure in the next film. Do they not take uh, him with? I mean, I don't, someone's got to stay back and look after the kingdom. I mean, no who man. better than the uh, official ice master and deliverer? I know who better. Wesselton! <laughs> yeah, right. He's not allowed to set foot in Arendelle. Oh, was he part of the conspiracy? Oh, yeah. He... Like, they say at the end of the movie, like, Arendelle will no longer do business of any kind with... Weasel Town with Weasel. T- I forgot. <laughs> well, Wesselton. I I vote Wesselton for Arendelle twenty twenty twenty. Uh, but anyway. Um. Uh. Oh. Oh my God. No. The, exactly the character that they have to leave in charge of the castle. This is exactly what a Disney movie would do. Mm-hmm. Freaking Olaf. Well, that's my thought. But <laughs> in in this image that's leaked of like the two uh, princesses looking all adventurous, Olaf is also standing next to them. Well, he can probably self-replicate by now. Yeah. Um, well, my headcanon is that Elsa can like summon Olaf if she has to. Right. She can't necessarily send him. You he's know, a familiar. Across. Yeah. But like he, if he's, you know, miles away and she wants to bring him to where she's at, she can do that. Mm-hmm. And maybe they have like a telepathic or like an empathic uh, communication between that. So like if something bad were to happen, you know, the other would, um, you know, knowing that something's up. Well, she could probably spread his conscience throughout an entire army of of Olaf's. She of could. Olaf. She could build an entire army of no. Olaf. You're right. That's, which would be fantastic. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, so they so they're on an adventure, and Olaf is with them, and Kristoff isn't anywhere to be found. Uh, well, I don't know. Yeah. So, I I just want there to be a meat hall and in the next frozen film. I mean, they made Jar Jar head of the, like a Senator. They can make Olaf the, the regent of Arendelle, but anyway. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, there, there, there ought to be a meat hall. Yeah. 
Um, so, and, and then apparently they're all very talented, like woodworkers and in Burke because they're constantly having to, that's one thing like, um, hiccup right. comments on is the fact that all their buildings are new because they, they all just get burned right away. Yeah. That's funny. So there, there is some good, like self-referential humor in, in the book and yeah. And, or in the movie, you, you said there was in the book, but yeah, in the movie, like they do like, they have a lot of great just little character moments um, that um, really, and, and that were elucidated quite a bit during the, um, the commentary. Um, and just, it, it was tough, you know, making some of the relationships um, believable in just the limited amount of runtime. Yeah. Relationships. Like, I mean, I, the, the primary, obviously the main focus relationships of the film were between Hiccup and the dragon, Hiccup and his dad and Hiccup and Astrid. Like, were there any other relationships that they even did care no, I about? Mean, I mean, the dynamics between all the friends, maybe, I mean, at, like, and making them believable. Like I noticed just how absurd well, they say some really absurd things, those kids, like, and it's <laughs> hard to know how seriously, like, <laughs> in the middle of these fights and like the sun was in my eye Astrid what do you want me to do block out the sun I could do that but I don't really have to like what do you well these are all like highly experienced improv improvisational comedians that they hired for these roles so they just like let them sit down in the studio and riff for a lot of it oh really like they're like here's the scene you're fighting dragons go like I mean they had scripts that they were given but then also were encouraged to inject their own material um, so it's it's a combination definitely of what ended up in the final final film and ultimately not a ton because like yeah these characters do have sort of a limited role um, but definitely add a much needed texture they're all yeah they're all oh yeah they were for side characters they were all they're all really fun unique they have their own Thing, like you kind of you get them and they're they're not just pointless you, you you can't you can't not cast tj miller as a supporting role in your animator <laughs> right who's that <laughs> Kristen Kristen wig plays his twin sister uh rough nut and tough nut uh, rough nuts the girl um rough nut has doesn't she have kind of a crush on hiccup at, at one point i just realized there's two nuts yeah that's <laughs> oh my one of them's tough and one of them's rough. Yeah. Well, yikes. Of course, yeah, it's established that the parents give their kids horrifying sounding names to scare off gnomes and trolls. Right. Um, and as uh, Gobber will insist, Gobber is Hiccup's boss or his um, master. Because Hiccup, he uh, chose the, the most badass of medieval trades, which is smithing, of course. Smithing and, and uh, leatherworking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I guess the two kind of go hand in hand um, with... He's an artisan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Hiccup definitely found a way to uh, make himself useful within the uh, community, even though he, he is sort of a pariah. Um, he, like, he isn't necessarily as... Uh, athletically inclined shall we say as as the other vikings he's he's a little toothpick as <laughs> a slight a slight build he's a slight build uh, which is which you know makes it all the more you know dissonant that his father is this 
massive, you know, Viking, apparently seven foot two. Wow. According to uh, the, the models sheet, um, played by Gerard Butler, stoic, of course. Um, and I guess one relationship that is implied is, is the mother of Hiccup, who is deceased, but she's referenced in in one hilarious joke which is you know when um hiccup he's he's being accepted by the community and so um stoic gifts him with his own helmet to use during a training and a double horned helmet which well uh, he says it was his mother's breastplate uh, half. half half of the the matching set and he points to his own helmet when he says that it's a matching set <laughs> Uh, so this this has all sorts of implications that we could go on about. Um, I, I I would have to imagine the horns were an added feature. Horns are probably an added feature. They also probably realized when they were writing Counter Dragon Your Dragon Two, they were like, oh gosh, we have this joke. What do we have? We have already designed our mother character. What are we going to do? And they're like, ah, scratch it, forget it. It's just a one-off joke. Who cares? But I I discovered that was the breastplate set from the armor she wore while she was pregnant with Hiccup. Oh, what? Where, where did you read that? I came up with that off the old noggin. Okay, good. I like that. That Because, that I mean, I figured, because, yeah, she she's introduced in the second movie. Uh, she's kind of a, oh, gosh, though. There is a flashback scene. So so my theory kind of goes out the window where she she was much more stout and, you know, muscular um, at the time she supposedly died um, just because she was, you know, like your typical... The flashback scene of her is like protecting the cradle, right? Or... Yeah, and she looks pretty much the same, right? Right. As she does. She's played by Kate Blanchett. She looks kind of like Kate Blanchett in the, the second movie. And an um, ageless... <laughs> Uh, an ageless woman of wisdom and majesty, Kate Blanchett. Not, not someone whose breastplate would look like two uh, Viking helmets. No, but for <laughs> a pregnant Viking warrior who would not cease to take the field, even in her state of uh, matron, in her matronly disposition. Matronly uh, uh, corpulence. Corpul- <laughs> wow, there's a word. But yeah, um, anyways, yeah. No, the, I, I buy that. Yeah, and then like Stoic's helmet also comes to a point at the top, but that's something that could have just been. And they were misshapen. Um, it happens. It could have been machined to uh, to be sh- uh, yeah reshaped um, by by Gobber, the uh, the um, blacksmith played by Craig Ferguson. I don't know if I'd want Gobber's hands all over my wife's old bra. <laughs> that's kind of creepy. Well, someone's someone's it's, it's, it's his job. It's true. Uh, and Gobber is a multiple amputee. Um, he, he lost his, I think, it's, is it his right hand? Uh, and then he has multiple attachments that he uses, um, which is a kind of running gag throughout the film. Yeah. It's like a, a mug and, uh, yeah, like imagine a sword and a hammer type of thing. Very long uh, John very Silver. Yeah, um, and then his one of his legs is gone too. He recounts the tale of when the dragon took a bite off of his hand and enjoyed it so much he must have spread the word, so that the other, uh, you know, less than a month later, uh, another dragon came and 
took the leg. I'll avenge your beautiful hand and your beautiful foot by taking the hand <laughs> of the dragon that took yours with my face. That's like literally the line, isn't Pretty it? Pretty much. Is it, um, yeah, Jonah Hill's character, Snot? Yeah, that. I'll avenge your beautiful hand and your beautiful foot. <laughs> like, they do. Like, that's like the bizarre dialogue you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. Like, they just... When, which was improvised, like in the script, they didn't add the the beautiful part, but that was an embellishment by Chris. like some poor little guy wrote in the script. I will avenge your foot and hand, and then Jonah read that and was like, "No, that's no." <laughs> yeah, so uh, I mean, uh, the whole obviously these are very heightened, stylized Vikings who many many of whom are very uh, just. WWE looking types, even the women, um, and like um, they're Wagnerian Vikings, Brunhildes and Helgas and Olgas with their you know opera, the horn helmets. I don't know. That's not apparently not a very historically accurate thing. Someone must have put a horn on a helmet at some point, though. See, that's what I'm thinking too. I keep hearing this and I keep watching it. You know, horns are completely historically on it, dude. Blackbeard freaking lit his beard on fire to strike fear into his enemies. Some Viking put a darn horn on his head. Well, and the samurai. Mm -hmm. Like, people think Viking horns are so historically inaccurate. I mean, the samurai had crazy helmets with antlers and horns sticking up all over the place. I mean, and like, in Native Americans, like, style sometimes won out over function. Or fashion won out over function sometimes. And in the in martial history and i i man like maybe it wasn't widespread but you better believe someone stoic size mm -hmm. threw some horns on his helmet and probably like charged into battle doubled over horns first like i don't even care what i like just foregoing sword and spear and just tried to ram some folks with the horns on his helmet also got some good appearances by uh, some viking longboats those sexy Viking longboats, <laughs> sexy Don Shredders. Yeah, I think actually, I mean, I longboats are are really sleek, but they're kind of boring because they don't have like they don't have various decks. It's just one platform and then a below decks, presumably, and then one mast. It's a, I yeah. they feel so unsafe because they're just not. Hmm, they don't have enough going on. Yeah, but, I mean, they're, yeah, they're, they're a bit primitive, but but definitely look cool. Yeah, um, they, you know, they've all got different designs on their uh, the sails. The, one of them's sort of violent, <laughs> with uh, the, an image of a serpentine dragon being impaled by multiple swords. <laughs> um, there's really no blood in this movie, though. It's kind of disappointing, but you know, it's pretty typical of PG-rated animated action films nowadays. Um, really the only semblance of blood that we get is like a few scrapes on Hiccup's face at the end of the movie, but um, otherwise, yeah. yeah. Uh, but there are stakes. I mean, the word kill is said probably like 30 plus times throughout the film. Yeah. You know, in reference to like killing dragons or dragons killing us. Um, I'm going to kill a dragon. You like, sound exactly like him. Holy I, crap. Oh, thanks. <laughs> That's my Steve Green, my Seth Green impression. 
just slightly alter your Seth Green impression, and then you've got Jay Baruchel. Yeah. You just gestured to all of me. <laughs> that, that's pretty great. But I can't kill dragons. Because all of these yeah. you know, kids' films ultimately deal with like accepting yourself and finding your true calling and yeah, inner beauty. Um and like the whole, you know, you just mentioned <laughs> you just motioned to all of me. Yes, you have to change this. <laughs> yeah, I I love that. They didn't like they that they didn't beat they didn't like that was a very great example of tell don't show where it wasn't implied mm -hmm. that like we didn't you know all the circumstances weren't indicating that clearly he hiccup in his entire entity yeah. wasn't good enough. Someone just straight up said it. Your entire personhood is not good enough. And it was, yeah. I mean, in a movie that excels in the area of showing rather than telling, there are some great zingers. Uh, and, and like the best, I, I think, of which yeah, relating to this theme in particular is when Gobber's like, um, it's, it's not, <laughs> what is it? It's not that your father doesn't appreciate you. It's, it's what's on it's the what's inside. inside. He can't stop. Yeah, exactly. It's about, yeah, hiccups, physical prowess and appearance uh, being like, he thinks that that's what's not enough. Right. But no, his father loves him. His father does love hiccup unconditionally. But it's, it's the fact that what's inside. <laughs> he does pull out the, you're not my son card. Eventually, that's, yeah. that's, we'll get to that. But um, yeah, like, you know, Hiccup is trying to put on a facade at the start of the film, clearly. Like he wants, he, you know, he at least uh, purports to want to kill a dragon. And he, he uses his brain and his wiles to, um, to, to do it. Yeah. Well, he, he, um, assembles this device it's it's like a trebuchet no what, what do they call it an arbalest it's a, it's a uh, or a ballista um, ballista mm -hmm. why why is this not the only film that involves someone shooting a giant arrow out of a giant crossbow at a dragon what other movie am i thinking of well the second one kind of does that too right i'm yeah. oh oh well game of thrones oh, oh my Oh my God! Yeah, game. Well, that's so funny because right when you said that, I well remembered the Hobbit. Oh my oh, gosh! Too. Game of Thrones and the Hobbit use the exact same mechanism for defeating a dragon, which is like one of the got to be one of the most inefficient, unreliable, reliable ways of taking down a dragon. A giant crossbow, like. How are you supposed to aim that accurate? A dragon flying through the sky, you're not going to hit it. You're at, what could hit um, it, though? A freaking archer. A real <laughs> archer, a real master ranger, with, which is what Bard is supposed to do in the Hobbit books. He's just got a bow, he's got his black arrow, and he's so damn good that he yeah. nails it right in the chink in the armor. But yeah. Well, yeah, in this, I, it is just a totally improbable shot that occurs in this film. It's like a bolo launcher. It's it looked like a net type of thing. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it makes more sense that like, mm -hmm. uh, yes, you're right, still like improbable, but it makes more sense mm -hmm. that uh, an, an accidental misfire of a net would have, a, it seems like an accidental misfire of a net would have a better 
shot chance of hitting something than like uh, an, an aimed missile. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Well, so apparently the dragon that um, Hiccup hits had to have just mistakenly crossed in front of the path of the uh, projectile in order to, you know, get entangled in it. Um, but you you do know that it was a successful hit because you know the the dragon screams and you, you hear it you know kind of crash off in the distance um and so yeah hiccup um he he causes various other like he gets in trouble during this opening fight uh with the dragons because I guess he gets chased by one of the dragons, like the large, um, sort of the heavy dragon that um, they call a monstrous nightmare. It like sets itself on fire. It's the more most formidable, kind of the most um, classic looking of the dragons. Even though, yeah, the designs of these dragons are very yeah, they're like twelve-year-old cartoon doodle drawings that they yeah. animated. Dragon training. Today, you will learn to fight dragons. Pain. Love it. Let's get started. You should come by sometime to work out. You look like you work out. I guess it's just you and me, huh? No, just you. Huh? Focus, Hiccup. Can I transfer to the class with the cool Vikings? <laughs> Has anyone ever tried to train a dragon? No one's ever lived to tell the tale. It's okay. I'm not gonna hurt you. We're gonna take this nice and slow. Come on, buddy. Come on, buddy. (gasps) Get down! It's okay. You just scared him. I scared him? So, so yeah, we uh, are introduced to the main dragon character, Toothless, so named for his ability to retract his teeth, kind of like a cat retracts its claws. Um, and of course, this um, the cat comparison is very apt because um, the lead animator, Gabe Hordos, the lead animator on Toothless, uh, used his cat as a reference. Which he must have also used as a reference for Stitch because they look the same. They, the designs are very similar. I maybe because Chris Sanders kind of has his own. He's he's a, a seasoned uh, animator, you know, from Disney, and and he's got a distinctive art style, like a drawing style. Um, he helped come up with the design for the Beast in Beauty and the Beast. He also, yeah, so. Like you see some parallels between the design of Stitch, of course, and and um, How to Train Your Dragon's Toothless. Um, and Toothless is a night fairy, the only one of the night fairies that we see. Um, very, he's kind of like a stealth fighter <laughs> version of the dragon. Yeah. Um, so it, yeah, it's kind of interesting. It's like the one or the um, most impossible to to, to spot dragon and yet it's the one that um hiccup is able to capture um but and then so he he goes to kill it and earn his claim to vikingdom 
but um, find realizes that he can't like he can't kill a dragon in cold blood. Toothless is incapacitated on the ground, and the two of them kind of share a moment of like. Hiccup did Toothless a solid, so so Toothless is doing him a solid. Yeah, I mean, Toothless um, is surprisingly um, forgiving toward Hiccup. I mean, he doesn't probably know that that Hiccup um, shot him out of the sky, but he knows that Vikings did. Yeah, and I think, and Toothless, I think he he understands that Mm -hmm. Hiccup was contemplating killing him and was about Mm -hmm. to, but then changed his mind and released him. And Mm -hmm. I think he, uh, he really wants, I mean, he rewards Mm -hmm. that. He's very smart. He's the most intelligent of the dragons. Yeah. Um, And, and the original design for toothless, I, I imagine this was before like the production got into full swing, but like the, there are these little miniature dragons called terrible terrors um they're, they're like iguana sized and those were the original toothless um as, as based on the book but yeah they did come up with this really cool design for the night fury um that eventually became the the dragon hiccup uh, trains and it's best black. looking dragon uh, cutest mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. he has a lot of expression he has these uh, large enlarged plates on the back of his head that look like ears, but since he's a reptile, technically aren't aren't ears. <laughs> they're like they're like a dragon. The the crown piece that you see on a lot of dragons. Is, is, there's a name for that, right? Um, the crest, the, the crest, or the mane. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, and then he's a six limbed dragon, right? He has four legs and. Two wings. And four, four, two wings. Um, He's an insect. Four legs, F-O-R-E, as well as F-O-U-R. Um, mm-hmm. the, some of the dragons, though, don't. Like the um, monstrous nightmare, like the wings are its four legs, F-O-R-E. Ah, the uh, weavern style. Yeah. Um, and the um, there's the uh, nif- not, not Niffler. What am I thinking of? Um, Natter the deadly natter which is like a chicken like it's very bird like dragon with a single horn on its nose doofusy um, dodo looking dragon yeah that has just the, the two hind legs and then wings um and then there's the two-headed one the zippleback um one of them spits gas and one ignites it uh with <laughs> with fire um, yeah, the the fire for these dragons, oh, and then finally there's the gronkle that has wings like a hum- hummingbird. It just looks like a blowfish. Yeah, it's very bloated looking. Um, and like these, they have a very liquid sort of fire. The fire is very uh, aggressive as it s- comes spewing out of these yeah. creatures' mouths. Kind of viscous, napalmy, maybe. Exactly. Um, so it's, it's like they, they generate or they secrete propane apparently from glands within their, uh, their gullets. Um, and, uh, toothless, his form of breathing fire is, is kind of like, uh, uh, what would you call that? Like a uh, sonic charge from the slave one. Oh yeah. Yeah. Or like a heat seeking missile. It's very, um, 
projectile, uh, very kinetic. Toothless launches his his final seismic charge into the belly of the beast at the end, and then Hiccup mm-hmm. says, "Well, we won't be seeing him again." <laughs> yeah, you, you, we have this huge dragon that comes into play at the end. Um, that's sort of like the queen of the hive that that we that um, Hiccup and Toothless discover, and when they discover, actually Astrid is along with them. She um, is is one of the more difficult um, <laughs> people that Hiccup has to deal with throughout the course of the film. His relationship with her is very interesting, but um, because you know Hiccup definitely shows that that he uh, is capable of proving his merit through training these dragons, um, because yet yeah, the insights he learns from his relationship with Toothless also translate to these other dragons that the Vikings have captured in order to like help train the, the kids to become warriors. Like they do, there's this battle arena, of course, where they, they have these training sessions against um, the other dragons and like all the like weak points or various like, yeah, weaknesses and quirks that these dragons have, like hiccups able to exploit to then become like this, you know, champion of the ring. <laughs> but, and uh, uh, yeah, for uh, presumably throughout the days or weeks of uh, training, Astrid never asks Toothless, "How are you doing this?" Um, asks hip- Hiccup. Asks Hiccup. Yeah, yeah she asks him eventually, but yeah, she's just frustrated because he and she, he should be the easiest uh, competitor to completely overcome, and mm-hmm. then he ends up being the best, and so she gets frustrated and competitive and mm-hmm. starts to dog him and inquires after his abilities. Um, and then eventually, yeah, she like follows him out to the. Um, it's it's like a, they they refer to it as a cove where Hiccup trains Toothless, and it's this like ravine with um with that's walled around the perimeter um that Toothless can't escape because toothless requires hiccups presence in order to fly because because hiccup builds this rig that attaches to the tail because uh of course toothless's tail was damaged during um the attack at the beginning of the film um yeah, loses like half of his dorsal fin or whatever you, you call that. Yeah, it's like a steering fin, like on a plane. I, it doesn't make a ton of sense that this would, this, this appendage is required for Toothless to stay aloft. Right. But, and you I do mean, see Toothless uh, get out of the pit on his own at the end. He does. He eventually does. Because the he hears toothless from or blah, he hears hiccup from miles away it's easy to conf- to get those car- those names mixed up because they're just such bizarre names they're such yeah they're such nim- nimby pimby names like, yeah i mean to- toothless i mean he is cute looking and but he is also threatening yeah um and and like it does have a plot relevant name because yeah he has shown you know, retracting his teeth and then extending them. Yeah, it's cute. Hiccup, hiccup yeah. sees this. You're supposed to be this threatening monster, but you've got these this gummy, goofy mouth, and so I'll call you toothless, and it's adorable. Yes, mm-hmm. the cove, the scene, the site of one of the most uh, beautiful and awkward scenes in animated cinema. Hmm. 
Yeah. He, um, There's just something <laughs> awkward about that scene in, in all, but that's still, you want to, you tears want to jerk and you want to be like, this is so beautiful, but. There's Wait, something between awkward. Hiccup and Toothless? You yeah. Think that there's awkwardness? Yeah. When the, the drawing scene, when Hiccup draws on the ground and the sand with a stick and then Toothless grabs a log and then makes a bunch of squiggles and this whole beautiful track called Forbidden Friendship by uh, John, Jer- John, Jeremy John Powell? Powell. John Powell. Starts to play and the music swells and it's like the most beautiful music you've ever heard. Uh, but... I mean, Toothless is kind of awkward in his mannerism. It doesn't, it doesn't emphasize the action. But is it like what's going on in the scene doesn't fit with the music well at all. Like he's, he's avoiding stepping on lines. <laughs> and, it's, and then the camera like spins around him. It's like so dramatic. It's like so overly like sentimental and such a bizarre. There's a dissonance there. I don't really know how to disc. I mean, every time I've watched the movie, with anyone, with family, with friends, I like I feel so much because of how powerful the music is. But what's happening on screen is so like weirdly not profound. Um, the music is great. We we could get into that. Like how um, it is one of the better um, musical themes um, of all time. Of, of all time, I guess. Yeah, but like even in recent years, like you don't get those same. Uh, John Williams-esque um, musical motifs. These- yeah, no one makes themes anymore. But because, yeah. like in in the new, in the trailer for How to Train Your Dragon three, you're watching it and you hear the theme and you go, "Oh, I remember this. This makes me feel things. I know what that's, it is." That's the How to Train Your Dragon theme. Like, there's not yep. many movies that do that anymore. Where it's like, "Oh, that's that movie's theme," which is the probably one of the worst modern filmmaking trends ever. Is to like de-emphasize the role of music and be like try to not notice the music only use music as the basest most manipulative subtly manipulative tool you possibly can and it's like no themes it's yeah it's an epic epic fanfare um and then there are multiple themes within the film as well like hiccup and astrid have their own kind of love romance theme and do they yeah um I was gonna I was gonna ironically ask you to hum it for me I mean the music is just so good I'm willing to do it so and it's all so like flows it like comes from the same well so it's all like a part of them it sound it everything sounds like the main theme and it's mm-hmm. a certain way. and well john powell did the music for solo he, he has t- p- picked up the mantle from john williams for star wars yeah and i thought there were some there were some really great moments in the solo mm-hmm. soundtrack that as opposed to michael giacchino's god-awful rogue one soundtrack <laughs> what? It probably it wasn't bad. It just maybe wasn't memorable. You know, I I exaggerate. I there was the when I saw the movie. I didn't. I have only seen it once. But when I saw Rogue One in theaters, I was trying to pay attention to the music, and I none of it was memorable. Except I did remember times where it sounded so much like a Star Wars. I mean, knockoff. you would you would be sound you would be starstruck if you met Michael G. Oh my God, I love Michael G. He's a genius. Yeah. Brilliant. He's made some of my, he's literally made my favorite music of all time. Like the, mm-hmm. sa- the lost soundtrack, every, mm-hmm. that everything in that show and some particular numbers mm-hmm. are 
literally the most beautiful pieces from film and television or yeah. in general I've ever heard. Yeah, I would I would literally worship this man's feet. But the Rogue One soundtrack sucks. And that's fine. You can be a genius and have a have a dud. I mean, like some of some of his tracks sounded like how it should have ended Star Wars theme, you know, like well, he, he, yeah, his pieces sometimes have the the czar effect of like reminding me of other like Williams pieces or other famous themes. It's yeah. just like weird. It's like they're close enough, but not exactly. Just ever so often. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm like humming to myself these other bits of music as I'm hearing his con original compositions for things like Jurassic World and. Um, True. Yeah. What was the other one? Um, Tomorrowland, he did. Oh, done a lot of Pixar movies. Super so. Eight was awesome. There's some amazing stuff in there. Okay. I can't up, remember any of the music. The like um, up. Oh yeah, that's, music is out of this world. So yeah, Michael. I mean, he's probably he's probably the best name mm -hmm. in film music alive right now. John Powell. He like collaborated with other composers on uh, plenty of other DreamWorks films, but this was the first where he solely credited for uh, the composer. Hmm. Cool. Uh, but yeah, definitely deserving. I mean, this is just like mom, the, my ringtone is the how to train your dragon theme. I mean, that's how much I love this score. Cute. I'll be fair about the Rogue One soundtracks and say, I haven't even listened to it since seeing the movie. If I listen to it for its own sake, it's obviously wonderful. And obviously, you know, I can't make <laughs> a thing like that. So obviously it's, Fine. No, it's okay. We you don't have to be walking on eggshells constantly in, on in this show. Well, I live in Hollywood now, so they yeah. can find me. Exactly, that is always I'm, a concern. I'm not, if you I'm, not, I'm not safe in the Midwest anymore. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, I I want to be as candid because I want people to be candid with me. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, but like the um, obviously the art of animation is just so arduous and and yeah sometimes we'll comment on like what we think is a mediocre result but i mean it's not never the fault of the talent and the animators that if a if a film suffers it's it's the screw yeah excruciating schedule no yeah heavens and you you know what occurs what occurs to me all the time and like last night watching it too because uh, like i'm an actor and I, so i was thinking about the voice acting and it's like all this insane effort, energy, work, skill, mind-blowing intelligence that goes into conceptualizing and drawing and then modeling and animating these characters and the cinematography for this story, building an animated film, like is so just such agonizingly mind-bending work. Mm -hmm. And then the only way to give it full life is to have actors say words. Mm -hmm. So it's like the simplest, like one of the, it's like these, like to me, there's just such a, like acting is so, is like such a small and almost, you know, inferior aspect to the overall product. I mean, it just requires such like, yes, obviously there's work that has to go into acting. You know, you need to understand your characters, you need to understand the circumstances and that'll inform how you deliver your line. But at the end of the day, you're just saying words. Whereas what the whole rest of the animation process is is so much harder and more intense than that oh yeah i mean it's a, the nature of art is that you know, so sometimes the most minor detail can make or break right
So yeah, the the final confrontation. Yeah, I mean, we go through the whole series of events. There's a lot of trial and error with uh, Hiccup training Toothless, uh, which makes that whole um, development uh, fairly believable. You know, they they start out in the pit and then end up you know taking test drives as um, Hiccups to retooling his rig that he has built for flying toothless um and then then yeah the final uh confrontation with this giant uh six-eyed dragon called the red death uh, that's what <laughs> the filmmakers call it um it's ne- never named in the film but yeah and you see it sort of wipe out the fleet of viking ships it's like a, you wonder how many you know characters are implied to have been killed in this encounter i don't it's there's really never any confirmed human kills though in this movie right Uh, even i think because there's a point earlier in the film they set off in three ships with vikings and then only one returns well the one that returns does have apparently the full complement of viking warriors just contained in that one ship. Everything we know about them is wrong. Let me show you. Either we finish them, or they'll finish us. Fire! We don't have to fight them. Whoa. Cool. Go, baby! No matter how this ends, it ends today. What are you gonna do? something crazy i'm in me too sign me up i love this plan <laughs> it's like the size of my <laughs> oh get it off the the climax of the film which involves toothless spitting his flame projectile into the uh mouth of the red death dragon that is about to fire its own flaming inferno um, and then causes it to sort of explode from the inside. Th- that is foreshadowed actually earlier in the film when one of the terrible terrors is playing with Toothless, like they're, they're having a little face-off, <laughs> the, the terrible terrors. Like... It rears up to blast fire at Toothless, mm-hmm. and when, it mount- when its mouth opens, Toothless just whispers a little blast of flame into its jaws and... It yeah. pops up and <laughs> it's a hilarious little scene. Yeah. I, I didn't catch that. I didn't notice that that was a foreshadowing moment for the, the climax when Toothless defeats the, the Oh yeah, you'd never you'd never expected just a little one off gag to to pay off so epically um at the end. How does Toothless, he gets caught by the village when, when yeah, he's undergoing the trial um, to become a man or whatever. <laughs> and, um, the, you know, after all the training sessions and uh, none of them have had to kill a dragon yet. Well, there finally comes a, a time when Hiccup has to either kill this dragon or, or fail the trial and uh, he he chooses not to. And he's facing off against this monstrous nightmare. Um, and then when Hiccup refuses to kill it, Stoic slams his hammer against one of the bars of the arena. And that, that startles the dragon and causes it to attack Hiccup, which then um, Toothless hears from 
is uh, from the pit in the forest um, and then finally manages to escape on his own and rescues Hiccup. Um, he blasts a hole in the, the bars of the, the cage because there's like a, a full a mesh of, of um, iron bars, you know, over the top of this thing. It's like <laughs> it's a if he, he had the ability to melt these bars, it's, uh, he'd probably cause a lot more collateral damage than he did. Yeah, there's a couple of times where you see a blast of fire fire at a crowd and then they just jump out of the way. They dodge. Oh, no. Yeah. They should get roasted. <laughs> should be a lot of uh, yeah, tender um, roasted Vikings. <laughs> kind of like the little silhouettes painted on the ground yeah yeah like but um yeah and then the it's kind of an epic um explosion at the end when the dragon smashes into the ground and toothless is flying weaving in and out of the spines that are protruding out of its back um that shot actually involves a an enlarged model of the giant dragon um, that it's it's about five times larger than it's uh, than it should be in order to. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Of toothless kind of dodging and weaving amongst the spikes. Well, that's dumb. Yeah, it's a little unfortunate that they they messed with the scale, but um, cheated. <laughs> you don't really notice it. Well, they they should have just made it that big. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, so it pulls an executor from uh, Return of the Jedi, the Super Star Destroyer, as it's smashing into the Death Star. It's amazing, man. That shot is so amazing in Return of the Jedi. Good heavens. Like this giant, giant Star Destroyer crashes into the surface of a Death Star, and it looks so tiny by comparison. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's good. (laughs) So I think one of the more emotionally climactic moments for me is um, at the end, um, because the... The Vikings are able to capture Toothless when Toothless comes to Hiccup's rescue. Um, And then they hold him hostage as they embark on their final raid to to find the the dragon's nest. It's kind of epic as they're approaching the next nest. You can just hear this loud buzzing, this cacophonic Mm -hmm. um, buzzing noise from the, the... just throngs of dragons in this giant volcano. The hive, yeah. The hive. And then as uh, Stoic steps foot on the beach, it just stops, mm-hmm. comes silent. Um, they, they call that the Oz factor in ufology. <laughs> when, the Oz. Like, all the ambient noise just goes silent because of some uh, esoteric phenomenon, like either an alien or like a, I don't know, some other a cryptid a cryptid exactly all the crickets stop chirping all the ambient noise just goes silent epic um, the um, ships get set on fire and toothless is still on the sh- on one of the ships um, and he has to be rescued um, hiccup attempts to do it but he is he's saved he's uh, hiccup is pulled from the water by stoic but then stoic goes back in and um un shackles toothless which is pretty uh, the father finally embraces his son's gay boyfriend 
<laughs> essentially the joke was funnier when we were watching the movie but <laughs> no yeah he, he finally sees the error of his of his prejudice and uh overcomes yeah. it and his heart grows three sizes um mm-hmm. yeah it's, uh, yeah he, he apologizes it's it's an effective like they had to get the line delivery just right in order for the apology to sound convincing you know, in the amount of time they had, did they have to work really hard with Gerard to get that or what? Yeah. <laughs> really? Well, I to, to make it sound like genuine. So yeah. There's a, there's a moment earlier in that scene when uh, all the kids come riding in on, on dragons um, that, that uh, hiccup has wrangled for, for the entire group. And, um, gobbles like yeah he's he's stubborn gobber. like his old man got gobber yeah mm-hmm. every bit as stubborn as his old man and and uh stoic still kind of standing there looking incredulous so they, they were gonna have stoic be like yep that's my boy but um that would have been a little bit too rushed uh for, for that yeah arc that's my boy i'm glad they didn't do that that's mm-hmm. that's good Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's, it's, it's, I mean, his whole Stoic's entire life of, of hating dragons uh, mm-hmm. you know, comes to an end when he just finally sees mm-hmm. the truth and the necessity of the matter and mm-hmm. goes through a complete heart change. It's really beautiful. So, yeah, we end on Burke now uh, composed of a population of Vikings cohabitating with dragons um, and the line that kind of mirrors the opening is how uh, hiccup says we also have the coolest pets oh <laughs> as opposed to pests it's gerard butler's second time successfully saving civilization from dragons <laughs> because you what remember reign of fire don't you oh I didn't know he was in that. Starring Matthew McConaughey and Christian Bale and Gerard Butler. Yeah, that movie was way ahead of its time. Okay. Wow. So that was How to Train Your Dragon. Yeah, we'll, we'll be back to talk about How to Train Your Dragon 2 and uh, How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World, uh, on eventual episodes of the Thodcast. Conversations about animation. Thanks for joining us. I'm Philip Elke. Uh, thank you, Dawson. You're welcome. Good to be here. Good movie. Yeah. All right. Well, everyone, have a wonderful week, and uh, we'll be back with you from the uh, rugged the Algonquin room. From the Algonquin room of Burke. Um, we. I don't know if our next episode will be. How to Train Your Dragon 2, but um, very, very likely. Um, so everyone have a happy January. Until next time. 